This episode with Matt Watkinson was recorded pre-COVID-19. It was done at a safe distance, though. With Matt in LA, we added to the two-metre rule by around 8,000 metres. What that means is this episode is void of corona chat, but for those of you interested to hear what Matt does have to say on the matter, he's kindly donated a talk outlining his COVID-19 business battle plan to our Isolated Talks initiative. While we find ourselves isolated from each other, sharing ideas is that bit harder, so we've created Isolated Talks. Our aim is simple. With your help, we want to keep sharing ideas, and by doing so, we hope to raise money for the Samaritans Alongside Matt, you'll find Rory Sutherland, Rosie and Farris, Dave Trott, Vicky Ross, Mark Pollard, Amy Keane, Jane Evans, Nicole Yershon, Rob Schwartz and so many more brilliant people, all sharing their ideas from isolation in the hope of inspiring you to do the same. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Matt Watkinson. Matt is an internationally renowned author, speaker, and consultant on customer experience and business strategy, who crucially can still land a kickflip on a skateboard. His first book, The 10 Principles Behind Great Customer Experiences, won CMI's Management Book of the Year, and his second book, The Grid, was shortlisted for 2019's Management Book of the Year. He's spoken at events for the likes of Microsoft, Salesforce, American Express, and the FBI, and is the co-founder and CEO of Methodical, a boutique customer experience and strategy consultancy without the big agency bullshit. Matt says, the best thing to do with CX trends is ignore them. Master the underlying principles and you'll innovate. Focus on the trends of the day instead, and you'll always be a step behind, a sheep that's easy prey for the wolf. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much. What an introduction. Um, I've got no idea how you knew that I could still land a kickflip. <laughs> so it's true. I don't know who you've been talking to, but yeah, it, it is true. I think it's it's mandatory, even as an Englishman living in Los Angeles, that you can do that. <laughs> I think they would kick you out or something if, if, if you couldn't, but it, it is just about true and how often do you do you still do that <sighs> almost almost never but old habits die hard nice almost never yeah i wish i had more time for that kind of uh, frippery but i don't uh, good man right seven quick fire questions matt football or rugby uh, mm, rugby london or la i'm gonna have to say la only because i live here yeah, safe answer only because i live here Book or ebook? Ebook for me. Piano or guitar? 
Well, actually, that's a very difficult question for me to answer because when I was much, much younger, I played the piano very seriously with professional aspirations. And then I switched, which were totally, well, pure fantasy, by the way. <laughs> I'm glad that I realized that I'd run out of talent in my teenage years and, and not later on. Um, and then I switched to playing the classical guitar. So, so both or neither, it would have to be for me. That's fair. Right, I know you're a fan. So the BFG or the Twits? The BFG. Surf or skate? Oh, surf. I've had genuinely kind of transcendent moments on a surfboard that I probably haven't had on a on a, on a skateboard. That sounds very pompous, but yeah, probably, probably surf. Probably surf. Surf it is. And finally, Glenn Morangi or Lafroig? Lafroig. I find Glen well, the only time the only Glen Morangies I've had have had a bit of a tropical fruity kind of pineapple taste that some people love, but isn't really my thing. And I'm a I'm a fiend for the peat, so I'm I'm sticking with, with Lafroig. <laughs> Can I go and pour one now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it. Well, we got through those. So um so Matt, what was your first job? And then what was your first proper job in, in this industry in the world of CX? Yeah, so my first job, I, this is breathtakingly boring. I scanned documents and stuffed envelopes for an actuarial firm in Oxford while I was still at school. Wow. Which was like phenomenally boring. But, but the, the good thing about it was actually that the guy who ran the business who is, is still a close friend of mine, was an absolute fiend for quality. And, and he would come in periodically and, and he would look at the work and he would look at, the dis, uh, he would look at whether the stamps on the envelopes were equidistant from the top and side of the envelope. And if they weren't, he would just say, you have to do it again. I'm sorry. And because he, he, he had this ethos like, well, if quality matters anywhere, it matters everywhere. And people may not notice these things kind of consciously but it all all these tiny little things add up to the impression that you leave and and the perception that people have of you and that was like a very interesting lesson to learn 15 16 and then uh i think i outshone myself with another amazing job when i left school which was i worked in the call center at yellow pages updating the free single line listings if you can remember those so in every yellow pages, there's a free single listing that just has the name, address, and phone number. And I updated those over the phone about 200 a day for about nine months. And I can still, I can still remember the script that you had that I had to open the call with. Now, I mean, having said it several hundred thousand times, or however often it is, that's not a surprise. But that was a, a great experience as well, because you know, in many ways, uh, to reflect on later on, because it's customer service, it's a lot of the stuff that we talk about now. And of course, it's been a, a very instructive example of how businesses can have a kind of catastrophic decline into irrelevance in just uh, a few short years, which I guess was probably starting to happen uh, around the time that I was there. So like, even if you have these kind of ostensibly quite crappy jobs, they're amazing learning experiences, actually, in, in a lot of ways. And all of my jobs like that, and I've done many of them, have been. In terms of proper jobs, out of kind of, I guess, boredom, I'd, I'd say, my first year at university, I taught myself a little bit of, of, of web design, uh, basic HTML, 
CSS and the kind of Photoshop that we used at the time to kind of put UIs together. And after about a year of tinkering with that, I got a job with a guy who, again, I'm still close friends with, who had left a big agency in London. I don't know which one it was, but he'd left a big agency, moved out to the sticks to have a different kind of quality of life and start a family. And he'd set up his own little one-man shop serving SMEs. And he had too much success. I mean, basically, because he was amazing at, at, at design and everything. And so I started doing uh, basically overflow work for him. And I, the best thing about that was that I got to see the full gamut. So a little bit of project management, a little bit of design, a little bit of coding, a little bit of quality checking, a little bit of, of everything, which, whereas now, of course, all of these things are really, really hyper-specialized. I worked with him for two years. Basically, by the time I left university, I wasn't really at university at all. I was basically working full time. In fact, I even missed my graduation because I was working. And then after university, having spent two years learning everything I could about what then was kind of called usability or information architecture, I got my first contract as an independent kind of UX designer, uh, which was to redesign all the transactional stuff for P&O ferries of all people. And that project did really well. And off the back of that, I got a job as lead lead UX UI uh, consultant for Argos, who did a major redesign. And that site won online retailer of the year and made a billion revenue in its first year. And having done those two projects back to back, even just being 24 years old or whatever it was, I could I was off to the races basically in a in a very buoyant market with with way too much demand and not enough quality supply. And so I spent the next years rounding out my skill set in all of those areas, workflow, design, all of that kind of stuff. And then when the other devices came along, phone, tablet, the, the challenge for the brands that I was working for wasn't really how do we have a good website or app or kiosk or showroom experience. It was how do we join them all up? And that's really how I found my way into customer experience because I was a, I was a designer and a doer where they just kept adding channels until you were really creating or aspiring to create, I guess, the whole experience of being a customer. So that's how I ended up ended up here. So you were kind of there when it first evolved, when it became a thing, when you, when people were exploring new channels and it was a case of taking, um, I suppose, historically, all the skills that you had picked up, whether it was the attention to detail with the envelopes or your UI web development work and applying it more to to the experience itself yeah I mean I think I was just very lucky timing wise in a lot of ways in that when I kind of accidentally ended up being a, a web designer the the experience aspect of that was was coming to the fore because there's basically no switching cost you can just go from one website to another by pressing a back button and clicking the next result in in Google so Issues like usability and interaction design were very paramount in that. And then there was a kind of proliferation, I think, of ways of interacting with businesses. Uh, And at the same time, there was a sense that social media was basically giving customers much more freedom of information to decide who they wanted to to buy from, whether it was user-contributed reviews, whether it was you know, people getting slagged off on, on Twitter or whatever it was. So I think the combination of those factors together caused this major fixation that we're still seeing now on 
on customer ex experience and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and had a, a rare moment of foresight in writing the first book about customer experience principles that came out probably a year or two before it was on everybody's lips in, in the boardroom. So as much luck as, as judgment in that regard. And um, for anyone who's unsure then, can, is it easy to define or answer the question, what is CX? Because from my, I suppose, uh, ignorant standpoint, it's, it, it can, can be so many things. So is it easy to define? Well, this is a great question because I think one of the, uh, the perennial kind of challenges for the industry or for the people who, who work in it is that a lot of people end up in this space from different backgrounds. So some people like me come from design, some people come from marketing, some people come from customer service or managing call centers or come from quality and operations. And everybody brings their own kind of baggage with them in terms of what they, they think it is. The way that I have always found it most helpful to explain my personal take on it is to look at it in, in context and to look at it as a marketing activity, which by the way, not everybody agrees with. But I see it as a marketing activity because fundamentally it's about creating value uh, and desirability for customers, right? And that is really the essence of marketing in, in my mind. So in context... We like to think of four distinct but interrelated pillars, if you like, that, that kind of create value for the customer. You've got the product or service uh, or the value proposition, as some people like to term it, which is basically what am I buying and, and why, like a cushioned running shoe for 100 bucks or whatever it might be. You've got the appeal of the brand, which is like a Nike versus a Under Armour or, or whatever it might be. You've got awareness. Obviously, people can't buy things if they don't know that they exist. And because of things like the mere exposure effect, the more people are familiar with a brand, the more they, they kind of tend to gravitate towards it. And then the last thing is customer experience, which is really the quality of the interactions that people have with the business from start to finish. When we compete as a business, we basically kind of compete on value. So we're looking to do the best job, I guess, we can across all four of those or address whatever is the weakest link. Like it doesn't matter how good your customer experiences in terms of it being a practical discipline of doing things like journey mapping and making things easy to buy or return or whatever, if your product is just shit and nobody wants it, quite obviously. And even if you have a great customer experience, you can get totally owned by somebody who just does a much better job of, of raising awareness, for example. So we like to think of, in terms of value, where customer experience is a value-creating activity that is all about improving the quality or qualitative aspect of the interactions that that, that that people have. So, And that interaction doesn't necessarily need to be the customer purchasing, you know, acquiring the product, does it? It can be anything. Well, one of the things that we urge everybody to do is to say, define what it means for your business, not what it means in, in general, right? Because one of the key points that I always make and, and some people get it and some people don't, is that experiential value can come from the product or service and not be considered under the remit of the customer experience team, right? So to use a shoe as an example, a shoe is comfortable. A running shoe is comfortable, ideally. But you don't run down the street saying, I'm having a wonderful customer experience wearing my running shoe. Like, nobody says that because that would be really a very weird thing to say. But if you went to the store 
and they messed you around and you'd bought the wrong size and you couldn't return it, you'd say, God, I had a terrible experience at the Puma store or the Nike store or, or, or whatever it is. Right now, when you get into talking about something like an airline, what is the product or service and what is the customer experience? It gets very murky and messy because I would say, well, your check-in experience is probably under the remit of customer experience, but the comfort of your chair is probably a product design job. So what you really need to do is, in, in my opinion at least, is for you to decide in, in your business what you mean by, by customer experience and, and crucially see it in context. Because every business has established uh, specialists and experts who are doing different things in the business. You might have a guy who's an expert in social media. You might have a guy who's an expert product designer. You might have a, a kind of brand brand team. You might have an advertising team, whatever. These are all specialisms in their own right. And in order for, for customer experience to have any kind of impact in the business, you need to be able to integrate that with the other activities that are going on. You can't just say, no, we're replacing all of you or, we're, or you're, you all work for us now and we sit on top of everything. It just doesn't work in, in practice. So you've got to take into account the existing structure of the business, your weakest links in terms of creating value for your customers and, and work from that rather than starting from a kind of textbook definition and, and working backwards. And that's actually a major cause of failure in, in my experience is, is trying to do it that way. Yeah, it's a really interesting and important point, understanding that in the context of your own products or brand, because I suppose the on the flip side, you could find yourself in a situation where both departments are blaming each other for the chair not being comfortable. Well, yeah, and not only that, when it comes to, um, you know, another really thorny topic for this industry is proving, proving re- return on investment. If you're not clear who is doing what, then it becomes extremely difficult. So let's say, for example, we do, we're a customer experience team. And like a lot of them, we measure satisfaction, which sounds like it makes sense as a way to measure customer experience. Well, if our revenue management team decide to change the price of the product, and they lower the price, you're likely to see satisfaction go up in many cases without changing the customer experience at all. So if you're your kind of CX team, and you go, Oh, look, we've had a 10, 10 point boost in CSAT or, or whatever, it's very easy for the pricing guys to say, well, actually, that was us, <laughs> like, <laughs> hands off. So it actually becomes extremely challenging if you're not clear on, on who is doing what and how and what exact outcomes they're, they're aiming for, you know. And with so many variables feeding into you, like your example of a satisfaction score, it, 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 I can understand that becoming quite a messy logic to follow i mean attribution in itself tends to be quite complex or very complex even simply because of all of the variables i mean we see it all over the marketing world it's hugely complex and it is something that like so on on that particular note we encourage people when they're doing cx projects or programs to have a project specific metric of the thing that they're actually trying to change so it might be conversion it might be reducing the number of complaints it might be the number of people who are calling your call center about a topic that could easily be avoided. It might be uptake of a new self-service system. It could be anything where you can actually say, this is what we're trying to do. And how do we use our CX skill set to help us achieve that? So make it a means rather than an end. And then use a project-specific metric that demonstrates success and get as far away from possible 
as possible, sorry, from the idea of the aim is of customer experience is to have a great customer experience and we measure it with satisfaction because you just, there are way, way, way too many moving parts and, and way too little focus if you do it that way. You just kind of end up trying to eat the whole universe, you know. <laughs> uh, you basically end up progressively trying to take over everyone else's job while simultaneously delivering nothing, which isn't a great recipe for, <laughs> for popularity or success in general. <laughs> There's your ROI, yeah. Um, I've seen you say that the, the idea that customer experience can be managed is a joke, but equally you have obviously done a lot in terms of the world of CX and your, your first book has the you know, 10 principles of good CX. So is it more that there are principles to follow and because of the variety of and, and, and context, it can look very different in some instances. Is that essentially how, have I interpreted that correctly? So the, the reason that I, um, the reason that I said managing it, the idea that it can be managed is a, is a joke was, was really in reference to the idea of kind of centralized command and control on the basis that if you look at where people have had major customer experience scandals, it wasn't a decision made by a customer experience team. Like you didn't have guys at Wells Fargo saying, oh, we're doing a project to like defraud our customers and create these false accounts. I'll, I'll draw you a journey map and I'll, I'll like <laughs> put all the scenarios together and here's how we'll measure it with with like declines in satisfaction scores. Like you, like it, it probably wasn't with any of these with any of these kinds of, of scandals that you see, it wasn't a decision made by customer experience teams or, or could be. And it's because ultimately, in many ways, what we do experience is emergent from the work of sometimes thousands of people across different departments and disciplines, or can just be in the hands of a single frontline member of staff, like cabin crew or whatever, a single person who gets out of bed on the wrong side. And, you know, they kind of give you a bad... A bad experience. So that was my reason for saying that the idea that it could be managed is a joke because you, unless you are a kind of, I guess, a pure digital business where everybody gets a totally uniform experience uh, and you just optimize f for that across a very narrow spectrum of interactions, the idea that you can kind of create just a customer experience department and overnight do a great job. It, it, it's just, in, in my experience, at least kind of a bit of a fantasy. It, it, you can't manage it directly because it's emergent. That's not to say you can't influence it, but I don't think it can be directly managed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so can you tell us about the 10 principles then, or at least give us a summary? Yeah, sure. Well, the book, I the, the reason that the book came about was because well, I mean, to go all the way back back in time, my my dad is is an engineer and and a designer himself. And from a, a pretty young age, you know, as a curious kid, I would always ask him, "Oh, how does this work?" or "How do you do that?" Whatever. And he would always talk about first principles as a way to make decisions. You know, in physics, F equals ma, or or in electronics, V equals IR. I think whatever these basic kind of principles that allow you to make decisions in a, in a more efficient way. And, and that left a pretty profound in, impression on me. And just, I always liked the idea that there was some kind of underlying logic to, to things that made the world kind of understandable and to a degree, at least non-random. So when I began working in, in UX design and, and in customer experience, it really struck me that, well, there must be some underlying principles, however basic, 
or yeah, however basic or simple that would allow you to to make better decisions, just as general rules of thumb, right? There must be because psychologically, at least as a species, while we're all individuals, we're not fundamentally that different. Like we don't, for example, get people saying, no, I, I really enjoy experiences where people totally fall short of my expectations, right? You don't, you don't get people <laughs> saying things like that or, or people saying, oh no, no, I, I, you know, I love it when it's a total pain in the ass for me to pay my, my insurance bill or, or whatever. You don't really get people saying or, 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 or doing those kinds of things. So and at the time, the way in which we went about trying to improve experiences or, or product or service design was very much more like the analogy I use in the book is is hitting than striking, right? It's much more like brawling and swinging your arms around than it is being a kind of martial arts master. And what I thought was missing from the picture of kind of endless photo uh, focus groups and user interviews and research reports and prototyping and brainstorming and blamestorming and various other forms of storming was just, if we had a set of principles that we could use, we'd make better decisions because we'd be able to identify more clearly what the root causes were of the challenges. And we'd be able to approach solving them in a much more bounded way. I, I fully believe that constraints are really the key to, to maximizing creativity. And it's a much better question to give someone to say, what are all the errors that we can prevent in this experience, for example, than to say, how can we improve this experience? Or if you give people a tightly bounded problem, like what are all the ways that we could strip effort out of this experience is a much easier and more potent question to answer than how can we, how can we make it better, right? So that was the, the genesis of it. And I spent three years trying to research and identify what exactly those principles were to come up with a collectively exhaustive, if not mutually exclusive set of, of principles that we could use to help us guide those decisions, many of which seem very obvious, but, but the power of them isn't whether they're obvious or not. Most of them are common sense. It's that it gives you a structure to, to follow. So they were mainly things, well, to, to give you some examples of what they were, it was really that a great experience, all other things being equal, is effortless. And there are ways that you can certainly approach that systematically. They're stress-free and you know that you can reduce stress by eliminating the possibility for error, for example, uh, reducing the incidence of choice paralysis, uh, which causes a lot of stress for people, um, and giving people better feedback so that they feel better informed about what's going on. You can look at the sensory dimension. You can look at the social dimension. You can look at uh, how much control the customer feels like they have over the experience. You can look at how an experience reflects and reinforces people's identity, for example. So by having these really simple principles and obviously sub-elements uh, sub within them, you just give people a structure that literally anybody can follow to systematically improve what their experience looks like. And, and that's you know been really quite amazing to see. It's now been seven years. And I've, I've heard from people in every kind of organization you can imagine from pretty much all the corners of the world where they've applied these and, and got really wonderful results from it so it's it's been very gratifying to say the least and, and in fact it's been totally life-changing yeah and it's not industry specific at all is it you're simply looking at how you can you know strip effort out of processes yeah it's not even business specific actually i mean there are plenty of people in in public sector 
uh, who are interested in applying these things to create more, I guess, what you call kind of citizen-centric services. Because what, what the principles are all about really is about what governs a good interaction as a human being. So if there's an interaction taking place, I mean, I used, I used these principles to sell my house in England before I, uh, I moved to, to California. Oh, can you elaborate? Well, I mean, there were, there were tons of ways that I, that I did it. So like one of the principles is around expectation management, that you should set and meet expectations. So one of the things I did was I, I called my estate agent and I said, I want to take the photos of the, of the house. And they thought I was totally bonkers. But when I took the photos, I made every room look either exactly the size, well, basically exactly the size that it was, in the knowledge that for years, estate agents or hoteliers have made rooms look huge with massive wide angle lenses. So the expectation that people have is that the house is going to be smaller than I think. So when they walk into a house and the house is bigger than they think, you know, it's disproportionately appealing. And the the great thing about a house is you only need to sell it once. You only need to sell it to one one person. So, you know, and and I positioned the house in terms of identity, like rather than saying when people came around, you know, this is a, whatever it is, a, a three bedroom kind of terrace house in, in a nice village. I said, you know, all of the conversations about this is a great home to raise a young family, which is the kind of target buyer for a place like that. There's a huge park behind it. It was on the river in, in Pangbourne. I think you know the area. Um, uh there are great schools nearby. I even had lists of all the, the the kind of nanny and babysitting services that people on the street were using all laid out for people, like the Ofsted reports from the local schools and a little bit of discretionary effort. I think we sold the house for the full asking price to the third couple who came around. You know, I mean, it's, e- it's easy stuff. It's- yeah, but that's where I think, and I, and I see parallels in, in our in our world um, I mean, obviously there's huge overlaps, but specifically in our world, when you say certain things out loud, like reducing friction or just making something easier, it does sound so obvious. But in, it, until you wear those lenses and look deeply at the processes that are facing a customer, um, even things like choice paralysis that you that you mentioned earlier, you it, it, it often gets missed. Well, I think part of the problem with that is that it's just unglamorous drudge work really at the end of the day i mean it's just you know it's like if you go to the gym and you say i want stronger legs your personal trainer is probably going to say get on the squat rack and don't come off until bedtime and of course that's easy but it's also pretty fucking hard (laughs) like you know it's it's physically painful actually so and, and the same is true with with a lot of this customer experience stuff it's just very methodical uh, very thorough, detail-focused, structured, principled work, which is kind of cognitively, at least, the hardest way of doing things. And the temptation is always just to copy what someone else has done, uh, or spunk a few million dollars on some software that makes it someone else's problem or whatever. Rather than just saying, no, 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 we we can actually model this out. We can make this better. We can systematically Im- improve it. And and the best thing about it of all really is that it's doesn't have to cost much money at all because it tends to be very trivial uh, expressions of what you'd kind of call discretionary effort that really change people's perception and not these huge big bang redesigns you know 
It's interesting. Funny enough, I um I recorded a podcast. It was one of our Christmas specials with Tom Goodwin, and we loosely touched on CX and the idea and need of removing friction in these in in any type of uh, interaction. And I remember his remark being, "It's it's typically harder." As a, to sell a service where you you just take stuff away, people always want almost want the problem or expect the problem to be additive. They expect you to sell them something more rather than just looking at something and taking away. Is that is that a fair statement for the types of work and projects that you face or attitudes that you come up against? Well, to completely avoid the the question and answer a slightly different one, <laughs> um, I think if I can kind of rephrase it in a way that makes sense to me. One of my big lessons in the last couple of years, not least of all in running my own business, is that differentiation in the sense of having something unique or special about you to, to sell or advertise or mention doesn't really work. And what, or, or at least rather, what works far more effectively is to just be simply better. And what I mean by that is to identify things that would benefit everybody who's a potentially a buyer in the category that you're selling to and just do those things significantly better than most other people do. And you don't need to worry about having something special or, or unique about you. And if you think about businesses that are kind of dominating their markets at the moment, I mean, an obvious example would be Amazon. What they do is they're just simply better. Like who doesn't benefit from it being easy to find and order things? Who doesn't benefit from being able to return things easily? Who doesn't benefit from their things showing up when they say they're going to show up and in pretty short order? Like they're all generic category benefits. So the way that I think about it, rather than thinking about it in terms of what is easy to sell and is it friction or is it something else? I just tend to say, well, what would, be, what would benefit all of the possible buyers of this thing? So as, as an agency, for example, a basic one would be not ripping people off or not having the A team do the pitch and the F team do the delivery because the A team's now on the next pitch. Like basic things that any buyer from the category should expect and doing those better. And if a generic category benefit would be just making something easier to do, then there's tremendous value in that for people. And that's how I tend to think about it. Mm. You mentioned your own business there, so let's talk about methodical. So, so what is methodical, and 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 what sets it apart? Well, I think because I'm a, I'm basically I'm a glutton for punishment, and at this point, I'm totally unemployable. <laughs> I think are, are the obvious answers for for why we started it. Uh, if if we're being totally totally honest, and um, basically, I've worked with a with a small group of people now for up to like thirteen years. Some of us have been working together. And we wanted to continue working together, but in a more structured way, uh, in a business where we knew we'd enjoy going to work every day. So that was basically one of the reasons why we why we started Methodical. In terms of what we do for work, we basically are now pretty much just designing experiences, either improving websites and software and things for, for large-scale businesses or helping well-funded startups with their new product development by doing kind of concept design work where actually principles are hugely valuable because there isn't a lot of data because there's just too much uncertainty. So you can use these principles systematically to help guide your new product development in a very structured way. 
Um, so yeah, we, we basically do, we're an experience design studio, mainly doing websites uh, and software and multi-channel experiences and using stuff uh, from my second book to help shape the development of those products into something that's not just going to be beautiful to use, but is actually probably going to be more successful or commercially viable. In terms of is there anything that sets us apart, there is nothing particularly special about us. Uh, but I say that with the confidence that what we've seen, and which is exactly why I made this previous point, is that people don't want to necessarily buy something special. They just want to buy something that's simply better. And I think that we do a lot of the very basic things that anybody buying these kinds of services should expect better than than the kind of big agencies or, or provide more value for money. I would say if if I was to really try and, and and identify if there's anything that we do that is particularly difficult, uh, different, sorry, I would say that probably as experienced guys, UX or CX guys, we have a much better understanding of marketing and business strategy more, more broadly. I, I think that is, is one thing. So you'll notice from, you know, things I've written on LinkedIn, a lot of for a lot of people, customer experience is kind of a, a religion or a cult where whatever the, the problem is, they're the answer. Whereas I've really been an advocate for this approach of of integrating your work with other people, whether it's advertising, whether it's product development, whether it's more kind of uh, traditional brand building activities and working in a kind of collaborative way and identifying exactly what the problem is to the point where we, we quite frequently declining engagements on the grounds that the challenge the business is facing isn't an experience design problem and they'd be better off speaking to somebody else. I think we have a better understanding of, of that. And of course, one of the other good things is that we're small enough to care deeply about the, the, the work that we do and good, do a good job and also small enough that we don't have revenue targets and all that kind of junk. So we're actually able to do the right thing by people, uh, which I think is is a tremendous benefit of being a, a small little business. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Have you enjoyed Have you enjoyed the challenge of of running your own business? Well, I mean, I've never been. I don't think I've ever actually been employed. But what has happened is that I've gone from being an independent contractor to aspiring to build something more significant. And we're just in our third year now of of methodical. And I've 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 really enjoyed it. I've I've really enjoyed it. You know because we get to do work that is is really fun you know because of of the nature of our our business it feeds my family which is pretty helpful and also because it's a kind of situated learning experience where you take all the theory and everything that you've learned and everything that you've learned from running a business and you you really start to apply it one of my favorite books is by a guy called robert green uh, and it's called mastery he's kind of famous for that book the 48 laws of power but in mastery he basically says that on the road to mastery, people go through these kind of three distinct phases. The first is a kind of self-directed apprenticeship where you're absorbing information like a sponge kind of thing uh, and putting information from different sources together. And then you go into what he calls this creative active phase where you take all this information that you've assimilated and you start playing around with it or you start putting your own spin on it or you start running experiments and, and that kind of thing. And then the third level is this kind of intuitive kind of way of making decisions where you just know what is right or wrong because you've got so much 
theoretical knowledge and so much practical experience that you can almost instinctively make make great decisions. And I think that when I moved from being a contractor to starting Methodical, having already written two books by that point, like the, the grid really, for me, marked the transition point from this self-directed apprenticeship phase into this kind of creative active phase of having an enormously solid body of, of theory. Like I've read at least 400 books on, on the topics that I, I speak about or advise people on and having huge practical product uh, project experience, I guess, over, over 10 or 15 years. And now saying, right, now we're actually going to kind of build a business on the back of that now that we've actually got a fighting chance of not completely fucking it up because we know <laughs> we know how business actually works and if we when we have challenges we'll know how to go about resolving them and we'll know what to focus on to drive that growth and i think if we can give ourselves a little bit of credit we're doing well we're growing well revenue is up every year profit is up markedly higher every year because we're optimizing the business based on you know the 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 grid model that we advocate uh, other people to use which is from my you know, the second book. So expanding on that then, so so the grid or specifically the grid of the decision-making tool for every business is your second book. You very generously share a lot of the tools and the value of the, of, of the grid and the processes that are part of that on your website. I've downloaded a few myself here. So who is, who is the grid useful for and how did that come about going from customer experience to more uh, strategic uh, focused decisions. Yeah, that, well, that's a that's a, a wonderful question, and it's one that I'm really looking forward to an- answering because it ex- it provides so much context for the the kind of way that I see the world now. That I think for some people who are in customer experience land, it can be a little bit jarring. But basically, the grid came about from seeing catastrophic failures, basically on on, on projects large and small like i think between them some of the failures that i've seen either as a bystander or active participant have <laughs> probably run up to about half a billion dollars you know and 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 one of the, the the pronounced causes of some of these failures was people pulling on the wrong lever like assuming that the problem was was customer experience when it was something else or launching a startup where we're launching a new product to market where they'd got one or two things right but they'd missed one massive thing for example uh, like insurmountable adoption barriers for a product that however good it is people can't actually use it because it, it's not compatible with what they already have or it's too much of a, of a pain or, or whatever it might be or you know poor cost control or whatever it was and, and what i felt was that People needed a way of basically a very simple way that would fit on a single page that would show all of the factors that that kind of determine the success or failure of their business on a single page. And they'd be able to do some kind of root cause analysis of saying, well, is it customer experience or is it this or is it that? Or have, have we thought about all these different elements that need to kind of come, come together? And secondly, that one of the major problems that I saw is that a, a business is a system to all in, intents and, and purposes where everything is is integrated and you can't change one thing without it affecting something else. So, for example, you might cut the quality of parts to save money, 
And when you cut the quality of parts, satisfaction declines. And when satisfaction declines, customers defect. And then when customers defect, you have to spend more money trying to get them back, right? So second, third, or fourth order effects of decisions are seldom thought about, which is how so many of these kind of scandals and things come about. So the other aspect of the grid was to provide a model basically that treated a business as a system where you could say, if we change this element, how do we think it will affect all the others? Uh, and that was how it came came about, really. And it was, in retrospect, I mean, an absurdly ambitious project to uh, to undertake that that basically almost almost killed me. I think. I mean, it took me five years, and I just suffered and suffered and suffered in in, in trying to write it. I mean, the model itself went through I think eighty two separate iterations as it was refined. So you must be carrying scars still. Well, I'm carrying I'm carrying huge huge scars from it, but the way that I I see it or saw it at the time was that it was actually a tremendous privilege because I basically got paid to learn everything that I thought I needed to know to run my own business, and I got basically got paid to put myself through a kind of self-directed MBA of sorts, I, I suppose, and also to to make what I thought and continue to think is a is a major contribution that can really help other people to succeed, which is the whole point of of doing it in the first place, in, in basically giving people a roadmap of saying, these are the factors that are, are going to determine whether your business succeeds or not. And they're really easy to get your head around when when you see them all laid out on a on a single page. The challenge was making it usable and 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 accessible. And that's what took the time. But it's it's been amazing. And I mean, honestly, dude, I wish I could. I wish I could articulate what that writing process was like. I mean, it it savaged me. I mean, it it, it really did. I mean, the first book, the first book, kind of flopped out in like three months, and it was just written. The grid, just everything that could, every possible change that you could face as a writer was was there. I, I think if I'd known what I was in for, I would. There's no way I would have, have, have done it. I mean, just endless rewrites and polishing and, and finessing. But the, the thing I'd say about that book is that it is genuinely quite rare, I think, as an individual to say and truly mean, like, I did my best. Like, you always think, well, I could have given 1% more here or there, or that paragraph could have been a little bit better. But when it comes to that book, I, I am not, with my current command of the language, my current knowledge of the subject matter... I'm literally not capable of doing anything better than that book. So if other people like it, great. But if they don't, I I know that I I'm not capable of doing anything better than that. And and it's not often in life that you genuinely get to say that, you know. No, well what an incredible achievement. It must have just now be be such a great tool for you to use and others to use. The the outcome has been um, like a model that I really think will stand the test of time and, and will help people into the future. I kind of try and write things that are as evergreen as they can be. Obviously, you get stuff wrong, and obviously, in retrospect, you think, "Well, I would, I would probably do that a little bit bit differently." But like the ten principles from the first book, they still work, and it's been seven years. The grid, I think, will work in, indefinitely as a way of structuring your thinking about starting a business or whether a project should get the green light or looking at areas to to optimize so they both should have a, a, a really long shelf life and as i say the whole point of doing these things is to try and help other people um i've got a couple of um lister questions 
that I want to put to you. But before we do, I have two um, two things I want to discuss, even just briefly. The first one might seem quite trivial, but I've asked it before of a previous guest, um, Rory Sutherland, specifically on um, psychology, and you know he's a he's a man heavily invested in behavioural economics, and 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 um, I kind of owe him my career in many ways. We're, 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 well, yeah, we're, we're pretty good friends. And he, he read the, my first book when it was, before it was published. And he, he just, I, I mean, I've got to be honest and it's a little bit embarrassing. I had absolutely no idea who he was. Somebody at Ogilvy that I was working with at the time said, oh, I think you and this guy Rory would get on really well. Uh, he's a really interesting dude. I didn't know anything about him because I wasn't really that up on marketing or interested in marketing as I, as I've become in the last few years. So I was like, Oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him about it. And I sent him the manuscript and he wrote back saying, it's a strike. It's an, it's amazing. This book's really, really brilliant. And then he, he mentioned it in his Ted talk, like actual Ted, not TEDx. And then he threw the book a launch party at Ogilvy where we did a Q and a session. Amazing. You know, and from there, it, it, I mean, he is astonishingly generous with his, with his time and, and, and resources, you know, he, he really is, but he, it was him who, who set me up really. I mean, without him, God knows where I'd, I'd, I'd be now, you know. Listeners of this pod know my thoughts on, on Rory. He's a, he's a good friend and a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, and, and one thing I asked him on, on the pod we recorded together was whether he could apply any of his his learnings from the worlds of the behavioural sciences and psychology to being a parent, because he has two daughters, as do I. And he gave a great tip. In fact, it was one of the listener questions. He gave a great tip, was which was um, essentially placebo choice. So if you are, for example... <laughs> Uh, if, if you want your child to, I don't know, brush their teeth and they won't do it, you, you're just giving them the choice so they feel like they're making a choice and it's their decision of you can either watch five minutes of telly and brush your teeth or you can have, I don't know, a can of Coke and then brush your teeth, whatever it might be. Ultimately, they will choose one, which means they will brush your teeth. And, and, and um, I'm not just saying this, I've actually used that on both of my daughters and it has been absolute gold. It's been wonderful, and it's worked, and it's been really, really useful. So I wonder, um, with your with your knowledge and expertise of both well CX and and you know more strategic decision making processes, whether you have any tips of uh, for parents out there of how to apply that with your dad hat on. Well, the question is, who's the customer? Is it me or is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, selling your house was genius. I mean, the examples you gave there were wonderful. Oh, dude, I mean, that is a tip of the iceberg of ways that I have used these kinds of things to advance my own per- life agenda. <laughs> I mean, but there's no point in, in knowing it. And in fact, in fact, I have to say, I know this is not answering the question, but one of the biggest challenges I think the customer experience industry faces is the sheer level of hypocrisy <laughs> involved with people advocating for a lot of these things and and not actually doing them with their own clients or their own businesses. I've had in the last 12 months, three event managers or organizers who are just organizing basically customer experience or customer service events saying that I'm the only speaker who's ever given them a thank you card. I mean, you think like for customer experience speakers, it would be front and center, like 
we've got to do this stuff. Like we've got to, we've got to, we can't just talk about it. Like we have to live it. And this is a, like, I've kind of blown it now with the podcast, but this has been a boon for me because <laughs> like simple things like that, they just remember you. And when it comes to rebooking time, and it's a sincere gesture, I think you should say thank you if people, you know, pay you X to flap your mouth up and down for, for 45 minutes. You know, you should say thank you. It's a sincere gesture, but it's, it's strengthened by the fact that other people just talk about it, but don't actually do any of this stuff them, them, themselves. So uh, going back to the question, I, I'm not sure. I think I'm too early on in my parenting life to, to uh, opine on, on how these, these principles would apply. My, my boy's not even a year and a half yet, but we just try, I, I just try and invest as much time as I can with him as like an, an active parent and and not worry that I don't necessarily get great feedback. <laughs> you know, that's really, uh, yeah, he's not, he's, he's not so forthcoming with his, his feedback. I, I intend to get out in the long term what I put in and I'm putting in really as, as much as I can. And he, him and, and my wife are, you know, they're the centerpiece of my, of my life and everything else is, is secondary. And I think as with any relationship, you, you've got to put in what you, what you intend to get out. And that's, with a customer or, or with your, your, your kids and it's kind of as simple as that yeah yeah well said so let's get to our listener questions so asking the general public for their opinion be it on brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger but that's not stopped us asking so question one from sophie i feel like we answered this and i feel it's unfair to try and open those old wounds but equally it's, i'd be doing Sophie a disservice if i didn't mention it so she has said the grid is such a simple yet great concept but how much research and time went into producing it behind the scenes of the finished article? So I'm laughing there. We've clearly answered that question. Well, I would, I can say in addition, though, that on the website, uh, it's methodical.io. There's a section called behind the scenes that actually shows there's a, a kind of video flick through of all the various iterations of it. There's uh, also a video on the research and writing process that kind of went into it. Uh, and I will spare all of you some of the more gory details, but yeah, I've, we've, we've talked about it at length and it was, I hope I never have to work that hard again. I certainly don't aspire to. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, question two from, from Aaron. This, um, so this, you probably get asked this all the time, but I'm, I'm looking forward to the answers. What, uh, what are the best examples of innovation in customer experience that you have seen? That is always a very difficult question to to answer if it's phrased in that particular way because you almost wonder well what what would you what would you consider the phrasing to of innovation be an, 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 an innovation so the way that I think about what a great customer experience looks like is rock solid and consistent basic with occasional flourishes that that influence your your perception or memory of the event so I could give you an, an example of that recently which is that I had my hair cut in at a little barber shop in Copenhagen, and there's not much you can do really because I'm basically bald. But one thing that they always do is they take my glasses off, then they cut your hair, then they give your glasses back. And at the end of the haircut, the guy said, I just want everything to be perfect for you. And he took out a little polishing cloth and he cleaned my glasses until they were immaculate and then kind of gave them back to me with a with a big smile on his on his face. And I love little things like that because it's basically free for him to do. 
it doesn't require any kind of major investment on his part, but it's a tiny show of discretionary effort that just communicates a degree of thoughtfulness to the customer that radically changes their perception of of who it is that, that they're dealing with in, in kind of in a, in a split second, right? So I'm always on the lookout for tiny little, we call them kind of flourishes that, that kind of set businesses apart. There's a local cinema near me, for example, where they have someone standing at their exit when you come out of the, the theater with a big bowl of chocolates and you can just take one or, or sweets or whatever they are. Tiny, tiny little thing right at the end of the experience that just puts a little bit of a spring in your step as you as you walk out. So I I love those kinds of little flourishes or, t- or that anybody can do with a little bit of, of forethought. Anybody can identify these tiny little things and they make all the difference. Yeah, I mean, Rory, um, again, to go back to Rory, he talks about the extra chips or fries you get from five guys. They kind of fill the little chip packet and then they chuck a few more in the bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm always I'm always looking at that. I mean, there are some really silly things I also love, like Domino's have a zero click app where when you launch it, a countdown timer begins, and unless you actually physically intervene, they're sending you a pizza, which I think is kind of a, a amazing and and mad. There's also this um one of the other examples I love to use is this jug that Oxo made where you don't have to kind of crouch and look through the side or pick it up and look through the side to see how full it is. There's like a graduated scale inside of the jug that allows you to see how how much water or whatever there is in there. And there are people reviewing this product on Amazon saying, I'd give it six stars if I could, or it's the best <laughs> thing I've ever bought. And literally it it reduces the amount of effort required by about two seconds. But it just goes to show like all of these principles that I'm writing about in the in the kind of first book manifest themselves in all sorts of weird and, and wonderful ways. And my my great hope in writing that was that it would just give people a structure to do to do the same and not necessarily uh, overthink things, but identify these tiny little flourishes or details that that, that leave a, an impression on, on somebody, you know? Yeah. And I've always loved the fact that it's often things that seem so trivial that have such a strong impression. Totally trivial totally totally trivial most of the time just tiny little things it's like the um i forget the name of the hotel in i'm pretty sure it's vegas um that has the popsicle helpline you heard of that (laughs) so so it's a you know it's a relatively average hotel but i think on TripAdvisor, its ratings surpass some of the you know top five star hotels in the area because it has what it's what, what it's called the popsicle helpline and it's, it's a red phone that's situated in various key areas within the hotel and all you have to do if you're staying there is pick up the phone and press the only button available to you and within i might get this wrong but it's between i don't know 15 and 30 seconds a waiter will appear with a silver tray white gloves and a platter of different popsicles ice lollies for you to to choose from <laughs> that's amazing but i mean that, that perfectly illustrates the point is that something distinctive and memorable and that's also kind of a joy or marginally increases utility or something like that is if you combine it i mean you can't just do that and have a hotel that's infested with like cockroaches or or where like the bed is, I don't know, made of cardboard or whatever. Like you, you have to get the basics right. But if you have rock solid basics, 
then you can uh, just add these whimsical flourishes and, and people will absolutely love it because it's, it's discretionary effort. It's one little different thing. I once stayed in a hotel where they'd made both of my books out of chocolate and put them in a <laughs> kind of glass case in the room. Wow. That was pretty wild. I haven't seen that before or since. Yeah. Well, that's a hell of a flourish. That is a mega, um, a mega flourish. I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd spoken there about the topic, so I think they were going all out to uh, show me what, show me the goods. You know, amazing. but you, but you won't forget that. I will, That's the thing. I will never forget it. No, it was amazing. It was amazing. Amazing. Right. So, the final part of the interview, then, Matt, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. So, number one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? Well, as it happens. Giles, I, I, ha- I found myself in a situation where I had to think about this question quite a lot because I was asked by my university to give the, the graduation speech for the business school and I thought a lot about my, my younger self and what advice I, I wish I'd been, been given. And I think that the one thing that stood out for me when I kind of thought about it was to try and live a truthful life. As, as we get older, or in fact, it begins at a very young age, we we want to kind of be popular we want to fit in we want to find kind of find our feet in the world and we try on a lot of different hats we all we all do it's totally natural that we do that but it can be very easy to end up living a a a life that other people think that you should be living rather than the one that is in has the least kind of dissonance i guess with with your own internal character or, or or gyroscope and the people certainly that I admire the most in the, in the world, whatever they happen to be doing, are, are the people who are just, I guess, living a, a truthful life. Like one of my best mates uh, does landmine disposal and he, he absolutely loves it. Like one of my best mates builds guitars in his spare time because that's what he really loves doing uh, and works in product management during the during the day. I've got, I, I mean... I've got a friend who kind of tutors the children of oligarchs and finds it fascinating. Some people are primary school teachers. Some people work in advertising. The, but the thing that I, I, I find I keep coming back to with people that I really admire and whose company I really enjoy is they're just doing what's right for them. And as long as it's obviously not harming other people, you know, they're kind of basically living a, a truthful life. And, and that, I think, is where quality comes from. And that's kind of what preempt stops you from kind of having a a midlife crisis or or getting really unhappy in later life. So, if I was to give myself some advice as a much younger younger man or, or boy, I'd say like try not to lose sight of 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 who you are and what what you enjoy because that is something that I did do uh, for for many years in various different ways, and it kind of caused me no no great great joy in the long run so yeah just try and try and live a life that feels truthful for you and and the rest will take care of itself yeah that's great advice number two matt if you could banish one thing from your industry what would it be and why i'd probably banish some of that hypocrisy that i i mentioned earlier in that i think Anyone who's who's in this profession should aspire to to manifest the, the the principles and things that they're talking about. Obviously, that can be easier said than done, 
but I think we should we should maybe talk a little bit less and do a little bit more. I'd like to see a lot more action and activity and a lot more real world improvements and a bit less of the kind of hypocrisy and intellectualizing and strategizing and just people get I'd like to see people get on with things a bit more. Um are there any books that you can recommend? So um so obviously there is the 10 principles behind great customer experiences and the grid and, and equally mastery, which you mentioned earlier, but are there any others that you would recommend to our listeners? Off the top of my head, um, for, for people who are interested in, in, in business, I think I've got three that I'd recommend. Um, one is by Jamila Meadows called Thinking in Systems, because I think systems thinking is the missing piece of the puzzle for a lot of people. And it's a really simple little book that anybody can read and it will kind of change their worldview. Uh, that's an amazing book. Um, another one is by an economist called Brian Arthur called The Nature of Technology. It basically, I mean, pretty much as it says on the, on the cover, explains how technology evolves and develops and how that shapes society. And I think that's a, a really fascinating read for I mean, it blew my mind, that book. I mean, it was one of those books where I just, the world immediately made more sense after I'd read it than than before. And then to end with one that is necessary, I'd say, rather perhaps than than a delight, but actually they've done a really, really good job in making this topic accessible, is a book called um, Financial Intelligence uh, by Karen, what's Karen Berman, uh, which basically makes the numbers of business accessible to people who could not give a shit about accountancy or annual reports or, or, or whatever. And I think that whatever job you're in, whether you're in marketing, design, whatever, actually being able to have a conversation with people from finance in their own language goes a very, very, very long way if you want funding for things. And actually being able to understand the financial picture of a company when you decide what to do in, in any area, it's hugely valuable. And actually what happens is a lot of time people get promoted and promoted and promoted. And then suddenly they find that their job involves numbers and P&Ls and that kind of thing. Uh, and they have no idea. And this book is really the key. And it's it's incredibly well-written and accessible yeah, I'm going to look that one up straight away. Funny enough, I was part of a chat uh, on Twitter with a previous guest and good friend of mine, JP Hansen. Also a friend of mine. Ah, okay. Yeah, I'm a big fan of JP. So JP, JP was being asked to basically um, put together a presentation or at least an article explaining a bit more that sounds like is within this book, Financial Intelligence, for that very reason. I mean, he's long petitioned for marketing to have a seat back in the boardroom and we couldn't agree more. Um, and I think that would that would help marketers have the conversations at a level that they're currently not able to converse necessarily. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just like back. It's just one to read quickly, which you can read quickly, and then have on the shelf. And if you if you and then you can kind of dip in and out of it, and it explains everything. It explains yeah. how accountants actually calculate ROI, which is not how people in our world do it. It explains the nuts and bolts of the reporting that people have to do. It's and they've made it really. I, I hesitate to use the word gripping <laughs> because it's not, <laughs> it's not. It's not gripping per se, but it is in, engaging and and beautifully packaged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds fantastic. Well, I'm definitely going to look that one up, as I say. 
Great. So the fourth poser then, Matt, is we we always dedicate every episode to someone and we hospital pass or bestow that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you do the honours? I would dedicate the show to Ben Smith. Ben Smith's my business partner um, and we've been working together for since we met on a project. Um about 13 years ago and he is I, I often joke Matt and Ben are a great writer I mean even <laughs> though even though it has my name on the on the cover like he's the unsung hero who has edited or given a first pass of everything that I've ever written like and made it immeasurably better he he does an incredible job of all of the stuff that I am totally incompetent at with, with running the the business kind of from an operation side of things. He's endlessly patient with with me. And it's it's really him who who makes everything in the business possible. I occasionally feel kind of guilty that not everything carries a a joint kind of credit. But he's yeah, he's he's an absolutely amazing guy and the business literally wouldn't function and none of None of the books would be what they are without him. Well, Ben Ben sounds awesome. Ben sounds like the tricky. No, sorry, you sound like the winger, and Ben's just slamming it in the net. Although I'm wary now that you chose rugby over football in the quick fire, so I need a better analogy. But either way, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Ben Smith. So as a as a final call to action, everyone listening can um, head over to calltoaction.co for links to everything that we've discussed in everything from all of the book recommendations, obviously to your own book and the grid, to methodical.io and the video flick throughs, worksheets, all of that amazing resource that you've generously shared. How else can our listeners get more Matt Watkinson? The, the only place that you can get more Matt Watkinson is on LinkedIn because even though I have a Twitter account, I, I'm I'm in cryo sleep there. I mean, I, I look at it, but I just don't, and and I respond if if people ask me something, but I'm not proactive there. But I I write one or two kind of pithy little things on LinkedIn a, uh, a week, and I'm pretty active there. Don't have any other socials, no Facebook, Instagram, or anything like that. So. That's the only that's the only place. Cool. So that's easy to find you then. Well, thank you, uh, Matt, for joining us. It's been it's been a real real pleasure and a, and a total privilege to talk. Oh no, the pleasure's all mine, Giles. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the pod. We we hugely appreciate all of the support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. We've had dozens of those recently, which are hugely helpful. To get in touch with us, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or simply email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.